All right, so we've been in this series on prayer since August, but the last few weeks, we've been specifically zeroing in on the practicing prayer, and each week looking at a different prayer practice. There's only a few weeks left in the series before we're going to jump into the book of Acts for a while, but the last few weeks, um, we've been hitting in different ones, and I just want to remind us why we're doing this. Someone said, James, do you expect us to pray all these things? Well, well, no, that's not the way it works. The heart behind this is that everything we do as a body, as a church, as, as followers of Christ, is to increasingly become like Christ, right? That's, that's the heart, to live in love like Christ, to experience intimacy with Jesus. And the way we do that, the way we become more like Christ is by spending time with him, right? That's, that's how it works, by being with him and spending time with him, allowing his ways to become our ways. And so my experience has been in 25 years as a missionary overseas and training missionaries across the world that would come and hundreds of missionaries coming through every single, every single year is that the vast majority of people we were training from across the globe, when they would come in, almost no one had ever had any training in prayer. No one had ever any, any teaching on prayer. Most people, like myself, when they were young, if they grew up in the church, they were given a Bible when they were young and they said, read that. And they were told, and pray. And then you just listen to the prayers of people around you. And so you just try and copy what you see other people doing. And maybe you're given a devotional book at some point. And you try doing that. And you just kind of, kind of figure it out as you go along. It wasn't until about 10 years or so ago that I began to study prayer, that I began to realize that there are a ton of amazingly practical prayer practices that have been part of the church, in some cases for thousands of years, in other cases for hundreds of years, that are so life-giving and life-breathing in relationship with God that I didn't even know existed my whole life. When we were leading our Bible schools in South Africa, every week we would take an hour to do a different prayer practice together a week. And in doing that, we would introduce all sorts of different prayer practices from the history of the church. And some of them would stick. Some people would love some of them. We'd come back to them. Some other ones were total bombs and no one liked them, right? They were just like, nope, that didn't work. And that's fine. Others would be something that become a daily exercise. Others would be something maybe we do every so once in a while. And so when we moved back from South Africa... An example of this, uh, this was, what, a few years ago, we came back with a few suitcases. When I came back, I moved back with a couple tools, right? Well, the two tools I brought back with me, my uh, driver, my porter cable driver, and this was the tool I used literally for everything that I did, for the most part, and I had a screwdriver with me. And that did me pretty good as tools bringing back to South Africa. I lasted with this, we were renting a home, and, and this was basically what I used for everything. I mean, a, a screwdriver can work as a hammer, it can work as a box cutter, it works as a file, it works in so many ways. In fact, the bottom of this is all scratched up, because this is what I used to pound nails into the wall when hanging things up, right? These are the tool tools I had. And, and that worked great, just like I've had a prayer life that's worked great for me for many years. But recently, my, my father died a year ago, and tragic, but in the process, I inherited thousands of tools. My father was a collector of tools. In fact, we already sold thousands of them, and I still have thousands left, right? There is so many tools. He's got so many, a tool for everything. Now I have a drill and a screwdriver for every possible form. I think there's like 200 screwdrivers. I have endless hammers. I have endless files and crowbars and anything you can possibly imagine. Now I have it. I have every power tool. I have a, I mean, I have things from like right angle power drills and left angle power drills. No, I don't have that one. Um, and uh, at rotary hammers and, 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 and concrete uh, screwdrivers. I mean, just everything you could possibly want. I have one that fires bullets into the ground to shoot the concrete things f- further in the ground. And most of it, I have no clue what it is. Like, things like that. Um, and, and all sorts of stuff. And so when my dad was alive, I used to ask, Dad, why do you have so many tools? And he would say, well, each one has a purpose. I'm like, okay. Then I pick up something random like this. Like, I've never seen you use that one. What is that for? Is that for cutting carpet? What's that for? And he goes, and he would say, oh, that's a gasket puller. I'm like, when's the last time you used that? He said, the last time I needed to pull a gasket. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I'm like, sure, Dad, whatever. Well, it turns out I just used this one a couple weeks ago, and I had to change the transmission fluid on our van, right? So the tool has a purpose. Not used every day. Some of these get used a ton. Other ones I will never touch, and I have no idea what they even do. In fact, what I loved is that, so this drill was the drill that I took with me, and I've used more than anything else of all the drills we, I have. Like, of everything I own, this one has gone with me everywhere. It's my old faithful. It's lasted forever. It's done everything. I've used it for hundreds of hours of rebuilding homes and fixing homes in South Africa, all sorts of stuff. And it's one I brought back with me. And it's, it's been there every step of the journey. But just recently, I was introduced to a Generation 3 Milwaukee V12 fuel drill driver, right? This thing is a quarter of the size, has double the power, more speed, lighter, lasts longer. This thing is absolutely amazing. I probably will never use that thing again. And maybe I'll use it when I need two. But this, I have found, is so much better, right? It was recently introduced to me. So just because it's old doesn't mean it's better. In some cases, older is better. I have some of his old tools and screwdrivers. Man, these made in the USA craftsmen. Nothing beats these things, right? If anyone's worked with tools. But this will now be my new drill driver. Because I found it actually is far more effective for what I want to be able to do. And to me, that's what prayer practices are like. 
And so what I'm trying to do is put more tools in our tool belt. It doesn't mean you're going to use them all the time. Some of them you will never use and find are useless and don't suit you all. Others ones will be great for other people. There's all sorts of preferences of how it works. And so that's the heart behind this is, is that some of these might deeply resonate with you, and that's awesome. Some of them might be things that you're just like, that's garbage, I want nothing to do with that. And so as I've gotten a lot more tools in my prayer toolbox or tool bucket, I found that there's so much life to be had because essentially I love change. Not some of you don't like change. It's like, give me the old way and I'll do that forever. But I love change. I love mixing things up. And so daily, my quiet times look quite different. There's certain elements I do every, almost every single day. I pray the Lord's Prayer almost every single day. I Practicing the presence of God is kind of my 20, 50 times a day prayer that I pray. Um, but other ones are things that I bring in that are kind of just central, but I necessarily do them daily. Things like breath prayer. I do when, when, I, when I'm really when I'm stressing out or I really want to zero in on something. Of Lexio Divina that we looked at last week. That's when I really want to get deeper into meditation. I might do that a couple times a week and sometimes last, sometimes more. Reading through the, some of us read through the Bible every single year, I'll be honest. Because of the other stuff I do, I'm unable to do that. And so I read through the Bible every two or three years, if I'm honest. I still slowly go through, but I don't go five chapters. It's a chapter, sometimes two, sometimes three a day, depending on what other practices I'm doing in the day. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, is regularly in my rotation of prayers, right? There's, I, I mix them up, and I love, and also I have different devotionals I use regularly and different things and what I do. And I love the, 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 the variance that happens by different voices that are coming in of uh, of different styles of prayer and different ways of engaging with God. And so today what I want to do is give another tool into our tool belt. In fact, it's a two-parter. So today is part one of a two-part message. If you're here today, please, 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 if you can't be here next week, at least listen online because this is the setup for next week. Um, and so the prayer that I want to be talking about over these next two weeks is, well, the full prayer is called the, it's called the prayer of examine is what we're looking at next week, the daily examine. It was, uh, it's a prayer that, that St. Ignatius of Loyola said was the, is the most, and he's probably considered one of the greatest, you know, devout experts of prayer in the last 2,000 years, Ignatius of Loyola back in the 16th century, but one of the great giants of prayer. He said it's the most valuable prayer that anyone can pray. And so that's what we're looking at next week. But the, the, the purpose of the Ignatian prayer is to spend time allowing God to reflect upon our lives and kind of, kind of read us and, and reflect upon our day as we kind of sit back and kind of watch a movie of our life with God and let the Holy Spirit speak to us about that life, what's going on. But the problem with, with, with the daily examine is if we don't have a proper view of repentance, if we don't have a proper view of allowing God to search us, if that can ever lead towards fear or shame or anxiety or worry or doubt or, or seeing God as an angry, distant God, it can be really unhealthy. And so what I want to do is take today to go through Psalm 139 and pray through that, because that's one of those brilliant passages in Scripture where we see David praying through this psalm of reflection, allowing God to reflect upon his life. So we're going to start there this week, and then next week, part two, we're going to go into the daily examine. And so, so but first, before we get there, though, we first, must first ensure that God, we, we can allow God to reflect upon our lives and, and that his intimate knowledge of us is a beautiful thing and not something to be feared. And that approaching him, laying our lives bare before him can be a joy and a delight, not something that we are, are live in fear of in any way. So let's jump into Psalm 139. So in many Bibles, this passage is, or this psalm or prayer is broken into a few different stanzas. And we're going to start by hitting the first six verses. So it begins this way. You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So in this first stanza, David is speaking of how intimately God knows him. Notice how it starts, you have searched me, and you know me, God. It's already happened, he's fully known. And that's important because we're going to come back to those exact words in one of the final lines of this prayer. But David knows that he is known completely by God. He knows that God knows every single thing that can be known about him. God knows him, David says, better than he knows himself. God knows the words before he even speaks them. And so David begins this prayer by praising God that God perfectly knows David inside and out. There are no secrets with God. There are no secret thoughts or secret motives. Everything is laid bare before God, whether he wants it or not. 
So when we pray this first section of the prayer, we can literally just repeat his words. And then we apply it to our own lives. And we can thank God that we are known as well. There is nothing we have ever done, no thought we have ever had, no inkling or idea or motive of the heart that has ever been thought or, or pondered that God is not intimately aware of. So when we pray this first section, we, again, we can repeat his words. We can stand in awe of God with David and say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me to understand. I love Eugene Peterson, the message translates that. This is too much, Lord. It's too wonderful. I can't even take it all in. Right, that God would know us that much. Right, so that's that first section. So it's a beautiful thing to pray with David in that section. And then we get to the second stanza, where David says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you, God. So now David says that God is everywhere. Not does he, does he know him perfectly before, now he is everywhere. Nothing is hidden from God. David says, I can't flee from you. Even if I fly up into the heavens with wings, even there you are, you are there. Your hand will guide me. In the sky, whether it be in the sky or in the depths of the earth, he says, God, you are everywhere. Now notice the tone. Is he bemoaning this fact that, dang it, God, you're everywhere? Like, why do you got to be there? No, he's praising God that God is everywhere, that God's hand will guide him. He says, even if I walk in darkness and sin and brokenness, even if I want for my sin to be invisible to you and for you just to leave me alone, even there you see me and see every single step and see every single thought in my heart. Even the darkness, he says, will be like light to you. Night will be like day. During the midst of our deepest darknesses of sin or depression or hopelessness, where we're overwhelmed with the sin and the brokenness, and we think it's dark and pitch black, it's as bright as day to God. Think of the deepest, darkest place you've ever been in life. It's like bright as day to God. It's impossible to hide anything from him, no matter where he goes or what he does. And for some people, that's like a threat. Right? That sounds intimidating, but we're going to keep going. You know, Almost every single night we pray this together with my boys of this basic prayer of just thank you, God, that you are with us. As we pray the Lord's Prayer, the next is always this. Thank you, Lord, that we are with us. That, Lord, even when we are scared, you are there. When we're lonely, you're there. When we're hurt, you are there. When we feel alone, we are, you are there, Lord. You are always there. There's nowhere we can ever go where you are not with us. We pray that my boys, but it's something because I want them to grow up knowing that God is always with us. I want that just part of their understanding. I love it. So often we'll hear Caleb, our six-year-old, shout out at dinner table. Anytime he says something about being somewhere, no one else is like, but God is there. Like that's always his answer for everything. God is there. Like he just says it matter-of-factly. They're not, someone else is like, nope, God is there. Like even if they don't know Christ, but God was with them. Like, amen. Like I want that just burned into his brain that he is never, ever, ever, ever alone, no matter what. But as we pray this, you can pray whatever way is relevant to you. You can pray, you know, when I'm preparing my taxes and I'm wanting to fudge my numbers, God, you are right there with me. When I'm watching porn, Lord, you're right there with me. When I'm getting drunk, Lord, you're right there. When I'm freaking out about finances or my job, Lord, you are right there with me. When I'm having a panic attack or overwhelmed, you're, not only are you with me, it says your right hand will guide me. In that place. If I'm drunk or I wake up in bed, of a bed that's not my own, next to a person that I shouldn't be laying next to, even there, God, you are with me. For darkness, this is light to you. Amen? Amen. Then we get to the third stanza. It says, For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Remember, this is a prayer that is sung by the people. 
My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count, they would outnumber the grains of sand on the sea. When I awake, I am still with you. See, now David praises God for all of this, for his creativity, for his wisdom, for his power. We have those three big fancy Christian words, omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscience. David says, you made me. Every single part of me, you know God. From the tiniest cell, you know everything about me. And then he praises God for what a wonderful job he did, right? He praises God that not only did you make every bit of me, and it's all wonderful, right? Some of us can say amen to that. I know every bit of me is wonderful. Some of you are great about that. But many of us cannot praise God for how wonderfully made. We actually hate many parts of who we are. This is not only did you make every part of me, you knew every single step that I would take. Every single step before I would take it, you already knew I would take that step. And David knows that he is forever in the very hands of God. And he's blown away by how amazing God is. His sovereignty, his power, his control, his grace. It's amazing. So can we pray this prayer with David? Are we able to pray along with him and thank God for who he made us to be? For how he made us? Can we say, God, I am fearfully and wonderfully made? Can we acknowledge that he has seen every single one of our steps and he knows the course of our actions? Can we acknowledge his sovereignty and his beauty and his glory? And can we trust him because he is all-powerful, all-knowing, and that he is everywhere? Can we praise him for that? Can we submit ourselves to him and his control and his will and his sovereignty? Right? That's what David is doing here. He's acknowledging that he is the ultimate God in charge of all things. Amen? So as we go through that, we can pray through those things. We'll do that in a few minutes. But if we stopped right here, this is just this amazing prayer. But if we stop right here, I mean, there's so many worship songs that are sung through the lyrics of the psalm. And if it stops right here, it, w- it would be great. But for some reason, in typical David fashion, David can never leave good alone, right? He always has to go and get awkward uh, in most of his prayers. There's so many of them where he's got to just go from like this beautiful glory cloud to like this really funky journal entry where people are just like, dude, David, get a journal. We don't have to sing this stuff as a body. Like, can't you find somebody? You ever have that friend on Facebook that like forever is like telling every single deep, dark detail in your life? You're like, dude, don't you have a therapist? Like he's got to be some other place. Like David, his therapist apparently is the entire body of Israel singing songs for eternity, right? That's his therapist. But he goes from the height of glory to all of a sudden singing this part of this song about God and asking for vengeance and things on his people. Like, I just wonder with David, the people that were around David, did they ever like just get tired of awkward of singing his songs, of singing these journal entries? I mean, worship songs, the whole body has to sing about vengeance on people, singing songs. Literally, like Psalm 109 is like, Lord, destroy my enemy. I hate them. Kill them all. May their children be, be fatherless. May the bank seize everything they own. May all of their prayers be counted as sin to you. Like, Lord, wipe them off the faith of the earth. And then it says, and may there be no memory of them anymore like that's that's the song could you imagine singing that as a word as a song like esther next week gets up and sings that's what we sing about the guy that cut you off in the, in the, in the, the, the road the other day we sing lord may he be fatherless forever lord may his children have no parents may they beg in lines for food god and that's what we sing as a like that's weird like that's really weird but that's what they did and so here david d- d- goes down one of those tracks and he says After just talking about how amazing God is, he says here in verse 19, If only, God, you would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Like, wow. I mean, I used to love that. I've memorized this psalm long ago, but I used to always skip that part. (laughs) That was just, no, like, that's not nice. I don't like that part. And again, not many worship songs include those lines. They include the rest, but not those lines. How many songs do you sing about hating people? Um, So God will kill my enemies. I hate them all. Wipe them out. 
I mean, is David schizophrenic? Does he just not have passion? That's not true. If you actually read, it actually makes sense why David is saying this. When you understand that David is zeal, is this emotional guy, is just processing out his his thoughts out there. And in raw honesty and zeal, he professes his allegiance to God. Say, God, you are so holy. You are so amazing. That's what the whole prayer has been about. And that he he believes, that, and it's, it's rightly so, that no one should be able to speak evil about a God that good. And then in his own zeal, I love this so much, he says, I honor you so much, God, that I will hate whatever you hate. I will capture whatever your heart is. I want your thoughts, your ways. And he projects his own pain upon God because it just so happens the guys that he's saying, God, I will hate them are the same people trying to kill him. So it's really convenient, right? That he'll say, Lord, I will hate them if you hate them because let's wipe those people out. Remember, he's a warrior king who also is a shepherd. And so for us today, I don't think we need God to hate people Right? We don't need to ask him to hate people. But this is just David's zeal that's caught up in this passion. He's pouring out his heart. So as I pray this prayer, I don't say, Lord, help me to hate more people. We're not Westboro Baptist picketing funerals and stuff, right? But instead, what I pray is I pray this prayer. As I read through it, I say, Lord, help me to see with your eyes. Because that's really the heart of it. Lord, I want to see things through your eyes. Help me to, the people that are hurting around me, may I see them with the eyes that you see them, God. And it's not praying that they'd be destroyed because that's probably not God's heart. In fact, God's heart is that they would turn to him and follow him. And so that's my prayer of the person who sexually abused me when I was a kid. Lord, be with them. May I see them with your eyes for the people that have made my life a living hell, for the person slandering me or gossiping or tearing me down. Lord, not I hate them, kill them, but Lord, show me your heart for those people because I know your heart is for them to experience your life. And if they're already followers of Jesus and they're doing it, then God, may you show them your heart for them and may they not have to respond in pain in that way. Amen? Then immediately following this profession of of identification with God, he gives two of the most famous lines in Scripture. There's actually no prayer I have prayed, no two lines in Scripture I have prayed more than these two lines in my life. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, this is in contrast to the last verses. It's, I always saw this growing up as kind of just like this random aside of just vengeful anger. Like, they should have removed that part. But it's, it's actually, this directly follows. He's saying, Lord, if that's how your life is so holy, and if that's what should happen to those who are against you, Lord, then I want to ensure that my heart is in line with yours. Right? Because he just paid, prayed vengeance upon those who were not walking with God or against God. And he's like, Lord, I want my heart to be pure before you. Not so I don't die, but to experience your freedom. And notice how this prayer starts. Literally the exact words from verse 1. In verse 1, he said, you have searched me and you know me. And now what is his prayer? God, search me and know my heart. But he already said God's already done it. But the amazing thing here in this prayer is that David has no fear of allowing God to point out his sin to him or his anxiousness to him or areas where he's not trusting God or in any way that his life is not lined up with God's way of the kingdom. He has no fear of this. He's laying his life bare before God and his longing is that God would show him any place where his life doesn't line up to that of God. Now, if this was Daniel praying this prayer, he has no Daniel. He's one of the legends of the Bible. A guy who, over an entire life of ministry, there's nowhere and anywhere that we see record of major sins that Daniel committed. It would make sense if Daniel was praying this prayer, right? He's a guy that seemed to be doing pretty well. I'm sure there was other stuff. He just didn't have the book of Psalms to record all his brokenness. And he didn't have a recorder right next to him recording every bad thing he did. But this is David praying this prayer. I mean, Daniel, I could get it. But David's praying this prayer. Did David make some mistakes? How could David pray this prayer and not be terrified? How could he pray this prayer and not to be racked with guilt and shame and condemnation? We've talked about before, what has David done? He has forcefully had his guards take an innocent woman Bathsheba from her home so he could have sex with her. Forcefully had his guards bring her. He then goes and forces his general to go and kill that woman's husband. The general doesn't want to do it. The husband keeps showing faithfulness to to David, and David blows through every single bit of conscience and has that man murdered and puts the conscience on another one of his greatest generals. And that's just the beginning of the story. 
Story after story after that of lust and brokenness and terrible fatherhood. And to top it all off, then 70,000 innocent people die because of his pride. Racked with lust the rest of his life. David is not a perfect man. When David prays this prayer, I can only imagine the amount of things that could come to his mind. Like, shouldn't it just be filled with shame and all this other stuff? But how can David be so free that he puts us as a praise to God, saying, Lord, search me and know me? You're like, ugh, that's kind of scary when God knows all that stuff. Shouldn't he be in denial like the rest of us? Shouldn't he be pretending that stuff didn't happen and just try and wipe his memory of the past? But instead he prays, Lord, show me my sin. Show me where I'm not trusting you. Show me where I'm anxious. So how can David be so free to be so honest with God and want God to be so transparent with him about his brokenness? For God to know him so intimately and he would not be afraid of his sin or his failure, how can he do that? And the answer is found in Psalm 139 because he knows God intimately too. He knows how good God is. And he knows that trying to hide his sin from God is also idiotic. Like when asking your kid, you know, did you eat the, the chocolate that was sitting on the counter? And they're like, no, it wasn't me. They hold up their hands, just covered in chocolate, chocolate wrapped around their face, like, I didn't do it. I mean, that's how ridiculous it is to try and hide our thoughts and our past and our porn and whatever it is, our alcoholism, our anger, our pride, our greed. I'm not going to give. No one will know. What do you mean no one? This is light as day to God. And David knows that God sees it all, but not from a place of fear. There is a joy in David in this prayer that he can be transparent with this good and wonderful God. Remember, by this point, God has already forgiven him of everything to do with Bathsheba. He should have died for it. In fact, if you remember the story, when David heard about it, the, the story told by the prophet, he says, that guy should die. And he said, you're right. And God said, but I will forgive you. He's been forgiven of killing Uriah, the, the woman's husband. He's been forgiven of so much trash. He knows the heart of God. He's experienced the grace of God to such a degree that he could say, Lord, I am an open book to you, Father. I lay bare my soul, my heart, my life before you. Show me where it's not a reflection of you. And he's not afraid of what God may show him. He literally opens up the psalm, which is fascinating, by saying, God, you've searched me and you know me. And yet now again, he prays this and says, so search me and know me again. I love this prayer but it's really shifted for me over the years from being a place of kind of like, oh no, oh no, oh no, to just openness. Okay, Lord, search me and know me. Show me whatever it is, Lord. I want to know. Help me understand. I love it. There's an incredible book, Sacred Rhythms by uh, Ruth Barton. She says this about this passage. She says, there's a paradox, of course, in the truth that I'm inviting God to search me and know me when he, in fact, has already searched me and know me, right? That was verse one. She says, the real issue in self-examination is not that I'm inviting God to know me, since he already does, but that I'm inviting God, here it is, to help me know me. You get that? That's what we're doing. This is clearly the bigger challenge anyway, since we all have such finely tuned tactics for protecting ourselves from knowing what we don't want to know. Like a small child who hides by covering their eyes, thinking that if she can't see you, you can't see her. We think that if we don't acknowledge what is true about us, maybe God won't notice it either. Does that hit home for anyone? How many hide-and-seek players do we have here that are just closing our eyes with God and just saying, as long as we don't talk about it, it doesn't matter. The giant elephant in the room. David knows that God already knows him. So David's really saying, God, help me know me. Show me what you know about me that I don't even know. And some of us are so scared to pray that prayer. But imagine if I got up here to preach and I had like a Cheerio from breakfast sticking to my cheek. Right? It was very awkward. No one, everyone's looking at it. No one says it. And everyone feels that doesn't want to tell me because I'm too insecure. And I don't want to know that that's on there. So I'd rather just stand up here and preach the whole time with everyone staring at my face with a Cheerio on there. If my fly was down or something, it was like, oh, we don't want to embarrass him. Right? Few weeks ago, apparently I had my like collar up for the whole sermon. And sometimes at the final, the second service, put the other. That's been bothering me the entire time. Like you could have said something. Well, I didn't want to embarrass you. Okay, so thanks. You just leave me the entire time and you say the whole thing, right? It would be ridiculous if I said, "Please never point anything out to me because I'll be embarrassed." But all of you are forced to look at it. When I used to do training for pastors of, of of preaching and teaching, I would videotape, make them all watch their preaching. Grown men would cry when they did it. 
Grown men refuse and get angry when they did it. Because they said, I don't want to watch that. I've had people storm out, cry. I'm not watching that. I'm like, you do realize all of us have to watch it. Like, we just all watched it. Like, if you're going to force us to listen to you, shouldn't you be forced to see what you look like and sound like, right? That's really weird. I, I hate, I'm too insecure. I hate it. I'm like, but dude, that's what we just watched for half an hour. Like, you should be forced to do that too, right? But the insecurity can make us not want to do that. We're okay with God knowing, but we don't want to know what he knows. We can't hide from God by covering up our eyes like a child playing hide and seek. So David wants him to know or wants to know where his life is out of alignment with God, not out of fear of punishment, but so he can walk in greater freedom. He knows that life is found. Freedom is found. So he fully trusts in God's goodness and kindness and compassion. Isn't that awesome? Did any of us struggle with this sometimes? But David can ask him to show his sin with no fear, with no shame, Without condemnation, he's not waiting to get beaten up by an abusive parent. Any of you ever seen a dog that's been beaten, and when you just raise your hand, what does that dog do? Just flinch. Like, I mean, it's really sad to watch. They, like, their eyes begin to twitch, and they're just kind of going down, right? Why? Because they're just waiting for it. You do that to my dog, Sammy, a little, little uh, schnitzer. You do that, he's just going to think you want to pet him, right? There's nothing in him that would think a raised hand would equal being hit, right? That's just not in his brain. But for so many of us, us asking God, show me my heart. It's like God raising his hand. We're just waiting to get hit. And we're just like, oh no, oh no, oh no. How many of you identify with that? Every time, Lord, show me my heart. It's just you're just waiting to get hit. David is not that dog waiting to get hit. In fact, Ignatius of Loyola, when he does the prayer of exam in his book, Spiritual Exercise, he describes that he won't even let people get to the step that looks at reflection upon our life. He says, I will not anyone pray that and get there until they have an overwhelming understanding of God's love. I will not let them get there until they have an overwhelming understanding of God's love because if not, they're going to pray the whole thing like a dog waiting to get hit. And he's like, no, there needs to be a freedom of the love of God as we pray and we repent and we stand before God knowing that the gracious, most loving being in all the universe is the one helping us to see those things. We're talking more about that next week. But Ignatius knew it was dangerous to have people pray these kinds of prayers if people had this twisted view. And when they, when they prayed, they saw an angry or disappointed or disgusted God looking at them. But for David, this prayer brings freedom, not shame. When God shows him areas he's failing in or areas where he's sinned, David will joyfully repent because he wants freedom. He doesn't want anything between him and God. So he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And he can say that with joy and expectation that, yeah, God's going to show some stuff. And that means more freedom, more life, more joy. And that's the way it should be for us. David could pray this even though he'd committed murder, violence, lust. 70,000 innocent people died because of his pride. And he can pray this and say, Lord, show me my heart. Can we pray this and ask for God to be honest with us and show us our heart where our anxiousness lies, where there's sin? Or are we living in shame and condemnation? In which case... We don't understand the love of Christ. Or maybe we've never accepted him to begin with in some cases. But David has experienced this grace of God. So this is not a license to sin more. It's a path to freedom. He ran to it. The Psalms are filled with Psalms of David's repentance. Because he wanted to fall into the merciful hands of a loving God. It's a story where God is ready to bring judgment in 2 Samuel and David sins greatly, and God gives him three choices of three consequences. He says, you can have three months of famine in the land, three months of your enemies destroying you, or three months of a plague. And David's response is this in 2 Samuel 24. He says, I'm in a desperate situation, he says to the prophet, but let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. He knew where he wanted to land. It was in the hands of God. He knew the safety of turning to God, that love of God is so good, and that's how he can pray this prayer. He knows how good God is, even if there are consequences, and there were, even if there's pain, and there was, he knew he could trust God with that. Amen? So what about us? 
Can we freely pray this prayer without feeling like that dog about to get hit? Can we ask God to search our hearts and when we look to Him, we see the loving and gentle face of God staring down with us as He reveals those areas of weakness and brokenness and pain? Or do we see that disappointed, angry God? David knew the God of Israel, you see. He had seen for thousand years how God had dealt with his people. And this was all part of God's purpose of the Old Testament of seeing that Israel had prostituted itself again and again and again and again, gone after every single thing. Israel, the Israelite people again and again had turned away from God, including sacrificing their own children to Satan in the very temple of God, including orgies in the temple of God, going to every single nation. I mean, read Ezekiel, the, the, the ways that God speaks about their sin of just prostitution again and again and again and again and again. Yet what does David know that God did again and again and again and again? Every single time God pursued them. Every single time. No matter what they did, God pursued them and he wrapped his arms around them. Every single curse in the Old Testament has the but if you repent clause. And David knew that part of God so he could come with freedom before him. Do you see that God when you pray? The God that's just desiring you to walk in freedom. If not, I would encourage you to memorize this, this poem. This is such an incredible poem. It's written by George Herbert 400 years ago during the time of Shakespeare. But it's about a man who's struggling to receive the love of God. It's one of the most powerful poems I've ever seen. I want, I want to read this. Kind of again, it's Shakespearean language because of the time, but so flipping good, all right? So George Herbert called love. He says, love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. How many can identify with that? But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew near to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind and ungrateful, Oh, my dear, I, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, Who made thee eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And you may, and may, and know you not, says love, who bore the blame? Again, Jesus. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. I love this. Can anyone identify with that? When God brings his love, do any of us draw back from God and recoil and think, but I'm unworthy of it. I'm guilty and sinful. Do we feel unworthy to sit at his table and receive it? I love those last times. He says, who made the eyes but I? He says, truth, Lord, but I have ruined them. I've marred them. He says, here, let my shame go where it deserves, which means I don't deserve you. I deserve punishment. I deserve hell. And he says, love says, you know me not. Who bore the blame? And the response of him is to say, well, then I will serve you. The response is, yes, so let me earn my way to you. I will serve you. And he says, no, I, love says, I will serve you. Sit in me. We just want to earn our way. There's got to be somebody who says, no, the love of God is unconditional. Sit and eat and I will serve you. Here's the plot synopsis. <laughs> Anyone feel like this unworthy to partake of God's amazing grace when he reveals stuff to us? No one was un more unworthy than David. Yet he drank it up. He sat and he ate. Amen? Because he understood the love of the Father. In Psalm 34, David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Sit and eat. So we can come before God and we can lay ourselves bare before him because he already knows it all. Next week, we're going to get to go through the daily exam. But for this week, I want for us to pray through Psalm 139 and really zero in on 23 and 24. All of it to me is a really set up for those last two until we just linger with God there in 23 and 24 and and lay bare before him, lay, lay naked before him all of it, and say all of our brokenness and our pain and our anxiousness and our fears and our condemnation and resentment and anger and lust and pride until just keep going back through it again and again this week. And then just lay there before him. Say, there it all is, God. And maybe for so many of us, we're waiting to get hit and open our eyes and see the loving face of God shining down upon us. And if we see anger and disgust, 
Do it again and again and again. Keep coming back around. Go through the psalm again. Go through it again. Go through it again until we're not seeing anger, but a face of love, delight, and gentleness and compassion. We are fully known, yet fully loved. How insane is that? The scariest day of my life was right before I asked Sarah to marry me. We'd been together for a while. I've told the story before. I was sexually abused as a, as a child by another man, and that led to a lot of twistedness in my life. Deep, deep disordered desires and brokenness and addictions and sexual brokenness and pain, deep addiction to pornography, and so, so many things that are inappropriate for me to say from the pulpit here, but I knew, and asked her, we were already kind of playing, we're getting married. She already had her wedding dress, or had the book, the venue book, right? She jumped the gun a little bit. Um, we've been talking about it for a while. I was in Uganda for a few months apart when all that happened, and she agreed to pick the ring out, everything else was done. And I'm like, no, 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 there's one thing. I'm saying, I have to get back to America because I have to tell you one thing. And I tell like, you will, might, you're probably going to say no, so don't do that, because I don't want to do it over the phone, because I was a few months away and all this other world. I said, I have to tell you what I've done. Like, I, that was the scariest day of my life. I'm like, coming before and say, I need to let you know what an evil, horrific human being I am. Doesn't matter where it's come from or the stuff that was done to me, but as a result of that, I did some terrible things. I've never been more scared in my life than standing before the woman I wanted to marry and spend the rest of my life with and just saying, I'm ready for you to say no. And I just vomited it all out there and said, this is how evil and disgusting and gross I am. She took it and said, I'm ready to marry you. To be fully known and yet fully loved. And yet she only knew a part of it compared to what the Lord knew. Because even through counseling later on through a therapist, I learned a bunch of stuff I had forgotten. God fully knows us, yet fully loves us. He knows every single thing about us. Therefore, we can repent without fear. Even if there are consequences, he's there with us. His right hand will guide us. We can come to him and say, Lord, here it all is. He'll meet us in that place. Amen? So let's pray through this prayer together. Let's cling to his love and his grace. So we're going to read a few verses, and we're just going to take a minute in silence just to pray through that section. We're going to go through over the next 10 minutes that way. Starting in verse 1, it'll be up on the screen. You just read along with me, if you wouldn't mind. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Just take one minute and thank the Lord that you are fully known. And praise him that he loves us, even knowing all of our faults. One minute in silence, just pray. verse 7 to 12. Pray it with me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Now, let's just thank him that he is there in every circumstance. 
and confess to him the places where you're trying to hide and thank him that he's there as well. Acknowledge this area of darkness and that he brings his light. Let's pray one minute. Verse 13, pray it with me. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. Let's pray out a prayer of thanks that he is sovereign and confess for you struggle to trust him. For you're not trusting in his control, his ability, his sovereignty, and in his ways and his path and then praise him as we trust him. One minute. Amen. 19 to 22. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. So now ask the Lord to see the people around you that you are wrestling with with his eyes. To see the people you consider your enemies, those who have hurt you, those who have wounded you, those who have slandered you. Ask God for his heart for those people, to give you his eyes. Let's pray, one minute. Now these last two verses, and we're going to linger on them for a couple minutes. But pray them out with me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So we're going to take a couple minutes here. As you pray this to God, ask him to show you your heart. Where are you not trusting him? Where are you walking in anxiousness and holding on to things? Where are you living in sin? Where is your life not reflecting his beauty? And as you do, focus upon his kindness and his gentleness. And this is not a flogging. This is about freedom, right? God is good and loving. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not stuff out. And then as you repent, reflect upon his generous love and kindness and compassion. Again, if it leads to condemnation or fear or shame, go back again, back through it again and see his heart of love and compassion and life and delight. Spend a couple minutes. Ask to reveal himself to you. Repent where you need to repent, but repent in light of his love and joy over you. Let's take a couple minutes. Oh, Jesus. Thank you for the freedom in coming to you. Thank you for the joy of being set free. Thank you for your goodness. Oh, that even David could stand before you clean. And you would call him a man after your own heart. David? David? Lord, I'm so grateful. Because that means I get to stand before you too, Jesus. In freedom. Without shame. Without condemnation. For all the wrongs I have done. For the wrongs that have been done to me, I get to stand before you in freedom and look upon the eyes of a father with delight and joy and healing. Ah, freedom, Lord. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your life. May we never lose sight of how good you are. Thank you, Jesus. through the lens of his goodness that we repent. It's his kindness that draws us towards repentance. So we're just going to end by focusing upon his goodness. And if you're still in that atmosphere of repentance, just encourage you to press in. We have the time. But Jesus, would you allow us to see ourselves through your lens? Would you be the mirror that reflects
praying over this. I, I know there's people here, and maybe you're watching online, and you're like, every time I go to do that, I, all I see is that hand ready to hit me. And you're wrestling with seeing his face as delight and joy and love and kindness. It could be because of what you've done in your life. It could be because of what was done to you. It could be of a life and, a, and a, an understanding of God as just an angry God who's just trying to wipe people out. Whatever it is, as you're sitting here praying, there's still shame or there's condemnation in your life. And if that's you and you're here today, I want you right now to respond to God and say, Lord, I want to see your face in its beauty and its love and its fullness. I want to be able to lay bare before you. Or maybe you're here and you don't yet know Jesus and you're like, I am so racked with guilt. And now is the time to say, God, I give it over to you. It's yours. And to look into his face and receive his life and his compassion. But if you're at that place right now where you're wrestling with this and you're struggling to see him in his face of delight and joy, I'm going to ask something kind of crazy in our body. I know we're Baptist traditions and all that. We don't like responding. What I'm going to ask you to do is just raise your hand, if that's you. Would you just raise your hand? If you're in that place and you're wrestling with this, and you're struggling to see God in that way, would you just raise your hand? Just wave responding and say, God, I want this, Lord. I need to see it from your eyes. I'm hurting. Just raise your hand. Now, something even crazier I'm going to ask for us to do is we're in a series on prayer. Don't go and put hands on unless you know them, but right now, pray for the people around you right now. If you're at that place, maybe you're the place receiving us, unwilling to raise your hand, that's fine. May we pray out over those people and trust that God will reveal his truth to them right now. So as a body, right now, let's pray for our brothers and sisters. There's a number of hands up. Would you pray for them? If you don't see someone around you, then just pray over the body in that way that God would reveal his heart of love and compassion right here and right now. Just pray out. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are loved. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done and your love and your compassion. Jesus, may you break through. Lord, where there is pain and there is anxiousness. Lord, as there is fear of approaching your throne of grace. Lord, break through. Pour out your love, Lord Jesus. Pour out your heart of love and compassion upon them. And may they see your face, Lord. As they open their eyes, may they see your face, Lord Jesus. Not one of anger, not one of disgust, but one of joy of tears in your eyes, of longing for them to return to you and to hand that burden over to you, Lord Jesus. Lord, bring healing in hearts today. Restore their vision of who you are, that we can lay it all before you without fear or shame. We can repent without condemnation. 
Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness and for your love. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Can we sing that again? Thank you, Lord. Come and find your hope now in Jesus. He is all he said he would be. Grace is overflowing from the Savior's heart. Rest here in his wondrous peace. Oh, the goodness, the goodness of Jesus. Satisfied, he is all that I Silence the instruments. Can we just sing that last chorus a cappella without music? We're not going to sing. I just want us to pray out this as we're just sing the words. Just pray it out. Oh, the goodness, the goodness of Jesus. Satisfied, He is all that I need. May it be. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your life, for your freedom that is found in you. Amen. This week, as you engage in the prayer practice, please do it. It's on your table. It's on your seats. If you're watching online, it's on the website under Sermon, Sermon Resources. Linger there in 23 and 24 and linger in the goodness of God. Amen? All right. See you guys later. God bless.